Here we are at Pod and Market. If you have walked down Halsey Street in the last few weeks, you may have noticed that several of the previously empty storefronts are now filled with interesting concepts and brand new retail experiences, most if not all of which are being spearheaded by Newark residents. As COVID restrictions have begun to subside and people begin to feel safe hanging out in groups, the bustle usually associated with Halsey Street is slowly returning due in no small part to these startups. One of the new retail spots is part of Brick City Varsity, a Newark-obsessed brand offering immersive pop-up shopping experiences and photography. This pop-up is the brainchild of Larry Lyons and offers vintage clothing in the lower level and current fashion options upstairs and on some special nights karaoke in the back. Uh, just a little more about Larry himself. Uh, he has lectured and taught courses in 20th century American literature, sociology, and composition at Rutgers and Princeton University. His activism centers on anti-violence, queer safe space, and black maternal health. As an independent consultant, he provides marketing, communication strategy, and creative services for clients in education, public relations, nonprofits, and the arts. Also, because this episode is coming out in June during Pride Month, I would like to mention that he was a participant in the Queer Newark Oral History Project. I'm going to include a link to the audio recording of that in the show notes. So, first, welcome, Larry. Uh, second, how you doing? Thanks so much. I'm so excited to be talking to you. I'm doing pretty well. It's a busy time, so I'm probably a little less energetic than, than usual, but very happy to be here. Yeah, it's kind of funny because you know, I've been trying to get you on because I've been excited about the pop-up. And I think every time I saw you this last month, it's been a, you've, it's a whirlwind. You're like a, a blaze of color just floating <laughs> and running. <laughs> running down Halsey being like, yes, and then you <laughs> run back into the store. It certainly feels like a blur. I'm trying mm -hmm. to write down my thoughts as it's happening so mm -hmm. that I can look back at this time with something greater than that blur that you mentioned. So uh, what's it like opening up um, a pop-up in the middle, uh, you know, let's say at the end of a pandemic, let's be hopeful here. Yeah, let's be hopeful. <laughs> um, it's nothing I would have ever imagined myself doing or being interested in doing. I... Um, I don't have a background in retail. A lot of folks who are interested in style uh, come up like folding shirts at the Gap or, you know, doing something like that at the mall. But I didn't have that experience. So this uh, my time in Newark has been my introduction to uh, retail in that way. But it's been, you know, through the vehicle of pop up shops. And so it's it's very different than opening a traditional brick and mortar, which has its own you know challenges and concerns. But uh, doing it during COVID uh, <laughs> has been crazy. I quarantined very strictly in Forest Hill, I, you know, outside of running through the streets to keep fit. I stayed in my house. And so going from complete isolation to direct interaction at point of sale uh, was a huge leap for me to make. So we definitely have to take great care to be very safe, um, wiping down things, spraying things, sanitizing things consistently. Um, modeling great behavior around keeping masks on, um, making decisions about trying on clothes and, and what that looked like. Um, so all of those challenges made it interesting, um, but very rewarding at the same time. Yeah. I mean, God, I, I, I could barely like get my life together during COVID and you're here like, <laughs> I'm going to do business. <laughs> right, um, well, I mean, this is kind of interesting because did the idea precede COVID and did that slow it down or was COVID like the impetus for you to jump in with the idea? Right. So I've been doing um, pop-up shopping experiences, I guess, for 10 years now. <laughs> um, so I, I, I always have a pop-up in me and uh, I just, I've been partnering with Melvin Sykes from Option One Realty. Um, they control a lot of the, or oversee a lot of the uh, the sale of commercial and residential space downtown and beyond. And so Melvin has been a great partner in, in getting really desirable spaces for the participating vendors to uh, do this work. So he and I, you know, are constantly in conversation um, over, you know, the course of months and years about what should happen next, you know, when we collaborate. And so um he approached me during covid and it, it may have taken some convincing but it was just a you know it was uh, uh, gonna happen eventually um sooner or later uh it just happened sooner yeah i wow um that's it's yeah, i can tell you it's not easy to open stuff on halsey because i think one of the issues and this i'm not blaming melvin or option one i know it's a larger issue but 
I, I, you know, people with ideas oftentimes find it hard to open in a place of prominence. And I would argue Halsey Street is a place of prominence in Newark. And because, you know, either rents are too high or, you know, space is not quite, um, a, you know, maybe it's too big for the kind of pop-up someone is doing or too small for the kind of pop they're doing. And um, it's always interesting to see if COVID, because you're not the only people on the street doing that, right? Uh, I think Brown Mill is two more stores down from you. Um, Halsey Co., that's the next block over. They just opened up. So all these things seem to have just like, like just poof, like, like in a way that I had not, was not expecting. I thought COVID would make Halsey deader than it really is right now. And all I'm seeing is actually more life than it was before COVID, which is weird. Yeah, I think all of that is happening at once. I think that there are parts that are more difficult to, you know, keep occupied. And then there are other parts that are, you know, welcoming, exciting new energy. There's also that new uh, coffee shop near mm. Halsey & Co., which is uh, what, Boss? Boss Blend, yeah. Boss Blend, yeah, 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 I think is the name. Oh, great. Yeah. Yeah, so it's a really fascinating time. There's such synergy between um, the, the shops or amongst the shops opening up. And I, I do think that um, Elvin has something to do with that because uh, he's been instrumental in so many of those leases. Um, and, but, you know, every... Every, every week, at least, um, since we've been on Halsey and we opened on May 7th, uh, there's been a ribbon cutting or a grand opening or a launch uh, to attend and support and network. And so, uh, although we've all been concerned about, you know, COVID restrictions and what's healthiest, it has been an amazing time to uh, come together and see humans and feel the joy of, of gathering and celebrating milestones in the lives of these um, brands and entrepreneurs. Yeah, so let's talk a little more about Brick City itself, uh, or Brick City Varsity itself. Um, what makes the brand um, unique in your eyes? Great question. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I hope uh, it's unique. I don't know. Maybe it's nothing special. <laughs> no, I, well, I, I like to believe it's unique. I, I imagine that um, some of my peers, um, in term, in, in apparel at least, are um, you know similarly interested in history and, and rooted in some kind of nostalgia. Mine is uh, squarely on uh, centered on Newark. I take uh, my my launch points from 1967 and 1969, and what those moments of resistance did to shape the culture um, of the city of of you know of its politics, of its educational landscape, of its fashion. And so um, my, the photography that I do through Brick City Varsity and uh, the vintage clothing line, all of that uh, ask questions about fashion history, about social upheaval, and uh, about uh, diff different ways to challenge the status quo. So I feel like that's what sets it apart uh, beyond a kind of a uh, uh, nostalgic aesthetic mm -hmm. um, and a, a kind of preppy aesthetic, uh, there's also this real interest and immersion in history. North yeah. history to be specific. You know, it's funny is you sort of, I mean, obviously you sort of embodied this. I mean, the, I mean I've seen you at the store a couple of times already, but I remember, I don't think it was the Larry Oki night, haha. Um, <laughs> but um, it was, it may have been that night you were in this kind of, um, I hate to call it a jumper because it's not really what it is, but um, it was a sort of one. Oh, it was probably a flight suit. It was the flight suit, almost like you're straight out of vietnam right yeah which is yes. you know but, but it was also a kind of interesting commentary in its own right and yeah you know, i never put those pieces together i was i just thought it was interesting fashion choices i never really it didn't hit me i guess until now right the way you're describing it this is all actually part of a larger sense of place and time for that matter yeah i um i have this experience of newark and it's i don't know if it's just organically romantic or if i see it that way because of you know my own internal romance but when i came here the um new jersey historical society launched this uh amazing installation called what's going on nork and the legacy of the 1960s i think that was the name of it um and it, it asked some really bold questions about how different Newark was then, which, you know, like 2009, 2010, um, from uh, 1967. 
And um, it included the voices, you know, the literal voices uh, and, and the narratives of folks who lived through the experience of the uprising here in 67. And um, it was really my, my introduction to the soul of the city. And at the same time, I was going to the Salvation Army thrift store on Pennington and the Goodwill that used to be on university and encountering clothes donated by, you know, presumably the same families that had had lived here and stayed in North to rebuild when we experienced so much white flight um, after the uprising. And so I was really inspired that their perseverance and their generosity was creating fashion inroads that, you know, were available to me today. Um, I remember having a finding a really great deal on these trench coats. Um, and, and so I had like these trench coats laid out and I was like, oh, I must I have to do a photo shoot about them. And then um, I wore one of them to this film screening that they were doing at the New Jersey Historical Society. Um, the film was Revolution 67. Mm, yep. Uh, changed my life. So uh, there's a historian, and I don't I don't quite remember uh, who it was, but recalling how when the National Guard um, began its bloodshed and in, in their supposed attempts to uh, quell this uprising, um, that that's when you know folks were just locked down and they were you know hunkered down in their houses. And uh, when you finally did feel safe to to emerge to come out of that protective cocoon across the landscape all you see is afros 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 everyone sprouting up with an afro and it was um almost as if within those days or weeks depending on how long it took you to feel safe um within that time like there was this growing sense of racial solidarity and pride that that manifested its itself in how we groomed ourselves how we did our hair how we wore our clothes and i was so interested in that that moment in Newark history um, being articulated through style and through fashion. And I knew that was kind of the inception of the Brick City Varsity brand. That's just amazing. You know, it, it's like you said, oftentimes in this town, we tell history through through word, right? And it, it is, it's astounding to see that you, and I'm sure you're not the only person, but you're definitely doing something with it. You see it through the lens of um, cloth, right? Or through, mm -hmm. in a larger sense, fashion. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I'm guessing the name, so Brick City Varsity, why that name if this is about history? Right. So um, I love a varsity jacket. That's one reason. <laughs> Got it. But it, it really is um, an homage to the Black Student Union at Rutgers Newark. Um, so if the, the first moment to inspire my brand is uh, the uprising in 1967, the second is the student takeover of Conklin Hall at Rutgers Newark mm. in 1969. Got it. Um, and it's this other, you know, another moment where uh, folks of color, folks who are marginalized um, come together and collectively, you know, realize that the, the status quo is not serving their needs. The promises that have been made to them are not being met. And they strategize collectively to transform an institution. And that's what happened um, when the students took over Conklin Hall. And so the varsity of Brick City Varsity is really a reference to um, that, that class, that BSU, that student organizing that forever changed the landscape of student organizing in this country, um, let alone the city. I'm glad you mentioned the takeover of Conklin Hall because when you said 69, my first thought um, was Stonewall, right? And I thought, oh, right. I, thought you, I thought you were making a reference to that, but like, no, no, you're talking about something endemic to Newark, um, another Newark event, which is not obviously as um, well told as 67 is, um, but still something you see it as important, right? And it's part of this legacy for you and your brand. <laughs> Yeah, but also, I mean, I've had the, the good fortune of connecting with um, the elders here in the queer community and folks like uh, James Creedle and uh, Gary Wright over at the uh, African American Office of Gay Concerns. Like they were toggling between, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. you know, those experiences here and and on the other side of the Hudson. And so I'm sure I'm certain that the folks who were rocking the Afros after 67 <laughs> and supporting the students in 69 were also um, causing, you know, 
riots and ruckus in uh, in a uh, Stonewall and other queer spaces in the city. Well, you know, I, I often like to joke. I mean, famously, Marsha P. Johnson from Elizabeth, right? Um, and I like to joke that half the people who participated in Stonewall took the path to get there. <laughs> mm-hmm, right, right. Um, and Because if you go to the path right now, it's bedecked in rainbows, at least the New York side. The New Jersey side, it's a little more tame because, well, not t- actually not tame, probably a little more repressed <laughs> because it's Jersey. Um, but uh, if you go, you got off at Christopher Street, oh, you know, the street of all streets, um, it's bedecked in rainbows. And I keep thinking, this is the train stop where half of the people um, who likely participated in Stonewall, you know, came through almost like a gateway, a reverse gateway, right, from right, leaving right. New Jersey to New York. Um, but yeah, actually, I mean, if you don't mind if we sidetrack a little bit, we'll obviously get back to the shop, but like, um, you said you've talked to the elders um, and those <laughs> stories, and I have yet to have um, the elder queer community come on the podcast, and uh, and I eventually, I, I'll try to make outroads to them. But um, what, like, what? I guess, what makes the LGBTQ experience in Newark unique and different from any other city like New York or Philly, or at least um, in, in their estimation, or your estimation for that matter? I uh, I have written uh, about the experience of living in Newark um, in in the same way that I write about my experience of being the little brother of a more popular and (laughs) well-received sister. (laughs) Um, Kind of the Solange Knowles complex. Oh my God. um, So I I do feel like there's this, um, there's this way that you may be seen as an underdog by outsiders, but there's this fierce solidarity that you can cultivate with the folks who know what it really is. And I mean, some you know, often that's folks that that live here, but more often, um, it's it's folks that can just respect, but you know, what Brick City is. And so, I, I do think that one of the strengths of the queer community in Newark is that the the kind of factionalism um, and self interest that might drive folks in other urban centers is less of an issue here. I feel more solidarity um, than, and and that's also true of the creative community here too. Like I I feel like when there are folks, there's just less competition and more camaraderie here and that um, empowers us to do greater work. Yeah. Oh, that's actually really an interesting way to put put it Um, in the sense that you're, it's, it's not, it's, yeah, Solange is a very interesting way of putting it. It's <laughs> a little more scrappy do, I guess. Um, yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, to, to sort of, um, we left off with um, 69 and the Conklin Hall and the sort of history, like how that inspired you to call the um, your 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 uh, brand Brick City Varsity. And my, my question is that, that we've looked at the past so much with this brand. What about the future? Where do you see this brand going? Is the pop-up, the iterative evanescent style of the brand going to continue or will it settle into a particular space? Will it go completely online? I feel like there's a lot of different ways it can go. Do you have any idea where that will be? I have some inklings uh, and some investments. I um, have really enjoyed uh, this element of the pop-up that allows me to introduce the Newark public its designers. Mm. Um, so, you know, as young women are looking for their prom dresses, um, being able to shake the hand and, and know, you know, and, and a designer and, and have a relationship that, that can grow over years rather than um, some, you know, big box retailer or something like that. Um, so, and that wasn't something that I could do through just my vintage collection, which is what I, you know, the fashion element of what I show at the pop-up. And, you know, I wasn't introducing anyone to the designers of the pieces that I had. Um, so that's been rewarding in ways that I would like to make sustainable. Um, so I'll be looking uh, at, at more opportunities to pop up and, and show in, uh, other vendors, brands, and designers, but also maybe um, working with the larger institutions here in the city and you know the city hall to have uh, maybe a brick and mortar that uh, exist in perpetuity to sh- to show the work of of new and emerging North based designers. Um, would that be? Would you try for different wards of the city, or or would it? Would you try to keep that downtown? 
I'd, I'd love to see it, um, you know, splash all across the city. Yeah. Um, the, the wonderful thing about um, our mayor is that he, more than most, understands the importance of uh having a smattering of offerings across wards and that you, you you can't just pour into the central ward and hope that things trickle down. And so I, I, I see city hall thing in that and I support that. Um, and is there, is there a website for the, um, for brick city varsity? Yeah. Uh, my website right now is just, uh, photo images, but Got there's it. more information about the pop-up at the, the website I created just for this project, which is uh, poplifenork.com. Okay, I'll be yeah, I'll be sure to include that in the notes in case people are looking for just also if they can't make it down to to Halsey. Although um, we do have listeners not from around here, weirdly, uh, <laughs> I've, I've I've learned this over the three years. There are people who listen who don't have any association in Newark, which is really interesting. Um, it's quality programming. I'm it's not, at all. <laughs> I, yeah, I like to think it's that instead of Russian spies. I do have a lot of listeners in <laughs> Russia, and I don't know why. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, let's just talk a little more about your background because I'm kind of like blown away. Like you know, not that um, you know people who lecture and teach courses and have studied at Princeton and Rutgers uh, can't open fashion pop-ups, but they don't often mm-hmm. do. So like you know, a what have you done in the past? Like, what kind of work have you done in the past aside from, um, you know, Brick City Varsity? And B, how did you go from there to here? Right. Um, great question. I, uh, the, uh, f- well, first, so my background is in literature. I uh, studied literature um, in, in undergrad at Rutgers um, and had a minor in sociology. Uh, I was probably one course shy or two credits away from a double major in sociology. And so I've always used kind of sociological approaches to literature. I was always interested um, in people's movements. Uh, and that's that that was my area of specialty within sociology. So I was always looking at uh, the very kind of the upheaval that that Brick City Varsity brand focuses on were the center of my academic study as well. Um, so when I finished my undergraduate work. I worked at Rutgers University Press in scholarly publishing and, you know, got an eye for what was going out on the market, uh, what kinds of stories were interesting to an academic press versus um, other types of presses. Um, And then I went on to pursue a PhD in literature at Princeton. And um, I was interested in kind of religion, spirituality, uh, because I am the son of a minister myself Mm. and raised in the Baptist church um, in New Brunswick, New Jersey. um, I I struggled during undergrad to to make sense of how sacred texts accomplished uh, what it did. And I wrote this uh, personal statement for my my graduate uh, school applications about how my church was so divided about how to execute the will of God um, mm-hmm. here on earth, that it it made Toni Morrison's writing about those topics resonate in really powerful ways for me. And so oh, she was and she was in your department. She when... was in uh creative writing. Oh, or, she's creative writing. Okay, okay. Yeah, she wasn't in literature proper proper, but she was um present for the uh courses that I set she did sit in on courses that I took at Princeton. Oh, that's gotta be the most awkward experience <laughs> you're sitting I, i've had this with the equivalent in the law for me where you're sitting taking I, I did what's called a colloquium which i think you're probably familiar with because they have those in in literature where you're just sitting next to like tori morrison who's like being a student with you and you're like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. this ain't right <laughs> yeah i mean i i guess one thing if you're sitting in a room with like literary figures but um the course <laughs> that i was taking was cross-listed with um african-american studies it wasn't even Mm. a a department at princeton yet um but it was taught co-taught by eddie gloud and oh fun okay put a pin in eddie gloud because i had a question for you that's actually weirdly related (laughs) to him but but, and cornell uh, i actually got to meet cornell once at uh, harvard which is fun he's wild (laughs) to say the least in a good way in a good way though um but yeah that's kind of wow those are all titans oh man 
Yeah. That's so crazy. again, of course, like you know, one week it would be Tony Morrison. You know, it was Tavis Smiley, Jay Z, yeah, yeah. Felicia Rashad audited the course basically because she was in a play uh, at the McCarter De- Theater down there mm. that semester. So it was just, it just towering figures from across the pantheon of black greatness like not just literature but every you know enterprise and pursuit available and it was right there at your seminar table you know what's really funny is not not to to get away from that seminar but when you were talking about what you researched and wrote on um the first author that came to mind speaking of eddie cloud uh is james baldwin and Mm -hmm. and I, i read his last year he dropped that book um what's it called um it's a sort of personal it's a really strange biography of it's not really it's not really a biography of Baldwin. It's like a him just interacting with the spirit of Baldwin um, and re- going back to the places where he wrote and stuff. Um, but um, I, you know, I love Baldwin. Well, Baldwin's hit or miss for me. So, and I, I wanted to get your opinion on this. I just could not get through Go Tell It on a Mountain, and I don't know why. And I've loved other books by him, and for some reason, I just didn't. It didn't click, and I, I don't know if it's something about growing up. In the in the sort of evangelical black community, that that novel has particular power, um, or maybe it's just I have to just try it again. I don't know. What are your thoughts on that book? Um, how old were you when you read it? Uh, literally, this was two three months ago. Okay, I <laughs> old. <laughs> That's how old I was. So I, I guess I was at a more formative stage when I encountered mm. it. And that might have made it resonate for me differently. I. Like I told you, my mother uh, got into ministry when I was um, starting my undergraduate work. So, uh, but even so, every night of the week I was in church. Like it was Bible study on Tuesday, choir practice on Thursday, youth fellowship on Saturday. Like every day of the week, there was a different um, church experience. So, Go Tell It on the Mountain for me was one of the first times I saw um, that reality dramatized and and represented um, in literature. Mm. And I gasped when you said that you could connect to it because I remember journaling about it uh, for Miss D in my junior year. Like <laughs> I, I was um, uh, starting Catholic school. Uh, it was it was going to be my first year in Catholic school, and I was uh, doing all of this summer work to uh, to read the work the the to read and journal about the books on the list, and and that one felt like such a gift. That's so funny, you know. It, and I love his write. Like I think Fire Next Time is just absolutely amazing essay yeah. slash personal narrative. And if Bill Street could talk, it's pretty amazing. Like the book. Yeah. So I read the book before I saw the movie. I thought the book was amazing. The, the movie actually does a really good job of portraying the book, surprisingly, um, for a movie. Um, but then Giovanni's Room, that one I finished, but was just like, eh. But I know people do love that. I know people love that book, but I just found it very like too conflicted i'll put it that way but speaking of pride by the way but um um yeah it's so funny because i otherwise love him i also love i mean he has a voice so listening to him is i'm at the audio i never forget i taught high school in newark and i played the buckley baldwin debates to these students and they were enwrapped these are students who just don't care or give two shits usually (laughs) uh about about like older you know debate styles and just to like listen to the way he spoke and he was a very slow speaker in his own way and he obviously developed that he developed that style speaking from ministry like you could see it walking right out of the the pulpit um and i I love him otherwise but yeah it's so funny because as you're talking here about what you wrote on i was like this sounds like you probably baldwin is must be cited somewhere (laughs) in your dissertation (laughs) absolutely at at least the first three footnotes yeah I mean, how does this stuff inform what you do? Obviously, it does. But like, how how do you take all this, um, particularly the religious uh, aspect of your life um, and the history there? How does that inform the work you do in fashion and photography and art? I think that my experience of the church has been my most intimate experience of any institution. Um, it's the most on the body and the body all encompassing, you know, kind of by design, right? Um, it's, you know, school is really just about your education and making you a you know, better human maybe, but, but church is, is, um, all encompassing. And so, um, my attitudes about institutions, my reverie for the ways that they function and my eschewal of the ways that they mm. dysfunction, um, and manufacture dysfunction all kind of stem from within the church which you know is is a just the black church is a site to 
study power and, you know, uh, ask questions about style. Um, what, what does it, what does propriety mean? What, what does a respectability mean? You know, what does marginality mean mm. in spaces that are supposed to be about? Those are the questions that the church gave. Um, if you don't mind me asking, uh, do you still attend some form of religious service? Um, only while shopping. No. Um, <laughs> <laughs> retail therapy I, turns I, into retail salvation. <laughs> retail sanctuary. <laughs> um, no, um, you know, if my mother preaches, um, that is the most reliable way to get me into the pews. Mm. Our, um, you know, I'll surprise her. We spent uh, New Year's uh, Eve together in church uh, last year, or, or the year before the pandemic. I have no sense of time anymore. But mm. yeah, usually it's as a plus one for someone who's more firmly rooted in Christianity than myself. And it's, it's more of an expression of love for them um, than, you know, a curiosity about how the theology is going down. Because I think I've come to clarity and resignation about, um, you know, what my doctrinal you know positions are. Yeah, I feel similar to you. There's a, um, I grew up in the Catholic Church, which is its own beast, uh, <laughs> and I cannot, for life of me, drag myself to mass personally. Mm-hmm. But I will still advocate that people, I, like it is, they're they're weird firm wall still in society where people have no idea how a Catholic mass goes, and I'm like, you really have to see it because it's 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 a it's an arcane, like the exact mm-hmm. opposite of what. A, of what Protestantism is, because Protestantism is about the more about the the, the word of God and, and and its expression in uh, in that setting. Whereas like the the Catholic Church is really about these these rites that must occur and like you know are obli- you know we're obligated to do um, almost like it's a Roman temple kind of thing like you you mm-hmm. that you're trying to do. And like I, I try to advocate people go see like like either Easter Mass that's the most uplifting or Christmas is a lot of fun or the Good Friday Mass which is this like, you know, essentially a passion play put before your eyes. And so, as an aesthetic experience, I love, and I don't know if you, this resonates with you, I love the church as an aesthetic experience, but then theology, to an extent morality and um, politics, it just it just makes me cringe. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and, these, and then you have your cultural, your own personal history bound up in that. It's just, it's an awful experience sometimes. Yes, yeah. Uh, it can, it can, definitely be triggering to 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 inhabit that space but there are the, like you say like the the pageantry of it all mm. um the i i my work in literature around kind of postmodern literature and spirituality really explored the ways that um and uh, this is dated now but it should still have some currency um there was this new category emerging of spiritual but not religious that yeah. i was writing about back mm. when you know back when I was an undergrad and, and uh, there were ways that the literature uh, that I turned to Tony Kushner's angels in America, Tony yeah. Morrison's paradise, that, that these writers of marginal identity, you know, uh, black women and, and gay Jewish men were returning to the site of the sacred to determine what was valuable for our, our modern lives. And, you know, in Tony Kushner's angels in America, he presents a, you know, a, 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 a sexualized element of the divine, like the, the yeah. angels have these flat bouquets of <laughs> anuses and penises. Yeah. And, and, and God's request of humanity is that, like, you know, stop, just stop progressing. And humanity's like, nah. <laughs> well, it's, good it's, on that. Like, it, it, it's funny. Cause uh, I, 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 yeah. Okay. No, I was going to say, because, yeah, sorry, not to get on Angels in America, which I, you know, I saw on Broadway a few years ago and oh, read, good. and it's almost like, actually, God is kind of absent, right? And that's actually one of the mm-hmm. jokes, right? Like, they just mm-hmm. don't, the angels he don't bailed. know. What, yeah, he bailed. They're like, or, 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 is it, did they actually say he? Do they give it gender? I even can't remember. Tony Kushner gives God gender in that, in that play. But, um, yeah, it's God bails, right? Um, you know, if if you want to make a hilarious comedy of it, you, you it becomes dogma. But in, in Angels in America, it becomes this kind of uh, a metaphor for AIDS, right? The AIDS crisis, essentially, an abandonment by God or government or whatever you want to insert there. Um, but I love the fact that the angels are so bureaucratic. They're like, 
we don't know what to do right now. Yeah. Um, God, that's it's a, another confused that's a fun, council. Yeah, God, that's a fun play. Um, but we were talking yeah, about uh, oh, spirituality, right? Spiritual, not religious, right? That's right. Um, yeah, and just and, the way that writers of marginal identity were mm-hmm. using the the novel and the play as a space to reimagine what we can do with divinity itself. Yeah, it's it is a weird way of not is it way, i don't know how to describe it like reclaiming divinity reclaiming theology mm-hmm. by doing that right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh because a lot of religion and i think this is true in the black church as well as in the catholic church and definitely true in judaism and islam like there are power structures i mean that's what makes religion religion not just spirituality it, it's it's a structure um, and there are those who interpret the word, particularly in the Abrahamic religions, and those who must receive it <laughs> uh, as, it's, as it's given by those. And one way you can reclaim it, I think, is by shaping your own theology in a literary setting. Um, I don't know. Maybe I'm talking out of my ass here, but I don't know. <laughs> um, how did we get on this? Oh, we're talking about how religion informs <laughs> what you do. Um, but you also do other stuff. I, I mentioned this in the beginning. You also... Um, I guess consult right on on marketing and communications and creative services. You know what kind of groups have you? If you're if you're okay with sharing some of the clients, maybe more public ones. You know, sure. Who have you I'm, consult with. Um, there's been a range. Uh, I have most recently been doing work with the Central Jersey Family Health Consortium, mm-hmm. which is uh, one of three state funded consortia that do work to improve outcomes around maternal health um, and child health, perinatal health generally. Um, so, they're, you know, doing marketing and uh, communication strategy for them, you know, newsletters, keeping folks informed about resources available to pregnant mothers and, and new mothers during COVID, uh, that kind of thing. Uh, I've actually done a bit of work in 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 the public health space around uh, marketing. Uh, previously, with the Newark Department of Health and Community Wellness, uh, working uh, on their marketing communications, uh, I did stakeholder engagement for the uh, Newark schools. Uh, I was working through the superintendent's office at the time, um, keeping folks informed about. Uh, all of all of the topics of interest as we were moving toward um are, are moving out of uh state um control yeah and I, i'm wondering like um i i imagine you bring a very uh, particular perspective and interesting insight to a lot of these relationships and i'm wondering what you know what is it i'm not saying that your clients have done this but in general what does the people miss about when they try to communicate with, or when institutions try, try to communicate either with the black community or, you know, um, maybe uh, a poorer community or for that matter, the LGBTQI plus community, um, what do they often miss when trying to communicate or market to them or even just, you know, spread information? I think organizations um, often concentrate their energies on what is profitable and, you know, if it's not a for-profit business, then that often means where the grant dollars come from. Mm-hmm. So that if if folks who are providing the grants are excited about social media, then then you pour your bucks into you know social media. But that that may not that may may not connect to the audiences that are most important for your group in that moment, right? Like sometimes it's word of mouth. Some you know sometimes there are non-digital human interactions that can be facilitated through your communication strategy. But if you are, um, if your money is coming from sources that say it's only sexy to do A or B, um, there's going to be a a limit to how effective you can be. Yeah, I think you're you're preaching to the choir with me because I often find that a lot of groups think like just doing a social media campaign is enough. Which it never really is. And I think like we still rely on these ancient forms of information spreading, which, like you said, is word of mouth or family connections or community connections. Um, and yeah, I think I think that, that resonates a lot with me, what you said. Um, but um, just wondering, you know, as we sort of round up 
the episode like you know any other well, no, no 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 we keep going oh, no, i'm fine to keep going I, i'm only just because i know how busy you are i mean you're opening tomorrow right? sorry we were just for the audience to know we're recording this on a, on a sunday night um but um no, no no like um i'm just more interested in uh, any other stories from your background i just find i you know it's it's always fascinating to hear people's stories and and sort of I mean, like you're not even from Newark. Like it's amazing that you're. I'm mean, sorry, you've been in Newark for a long time, but like you're not originally from here. How did you even find out to come to Newark? <laughs> um, I feel like there was an orbit, and maybe it was just within my cipher. I'm not sure, but when I was growing up in New Brunswick, um, I felt a kinship with Camden, New Jersey, and with Newark. Um, it felt like the, they were the three you know, cities that, that, uh, had similar profiles at that time. Um, now this was, you know, the 19, late 1980s, 1990s. So it's very different than now, but even, you know, um, being a university town, um, or a college town in some way, or having a healthcare hub, cause certainly, um, New Brunswick, um, was, was both of those things. It prepared me for Newark and, and made Newark um, seem like a sister city throughout my life. Also, in terms of fashion, I think when it was time to go school shopping, you could come to Newark for good deals. <laughs> um, so I, I feel like Newark fashion has been of interest to me since at least the second grade. And then when I moved here at the... Um, during, I guess I finished my general exams and was ready to leave... Princeton campus, um, because it is a beautiful, beautiful place to behold, but um, not always a comfortable place to inhabit, if that makes sense. Yeah. So when I came here, um, I was, you know, thirsty for the barbershops and bodegas and basketball courts that I knew from New Brunswick. Um, and I was not disappointed. Nort gave me um, the, the the element of home that I needed, um, but the distance from home that, that I also needed. I have grown in ways that my church family <laughs> might struggle to appreciate. Mm. Um, so Nort gave me uh, proximity and distance in equal measure. That's that's actually a really great line. <laughs> I think I think you're often trying to find that right distance. I mean, you don't want to go that far away that you feel like you're abandoning someone, but you want just enough that <laughs> they can't just pop in on you. Yeah, I mean, my undergraduate experience was you know such that I could ride a bike from you know the place where I you know went to elementary school to the place that my mother was living to the place that my church was and then to campus like it was all a, a you know a reasonable bike ride which meant that when i was starting to you know audition my queer identity um you know my church members were seeing the green hair and the ripped shirts with the safety pins like all of that was a little too available and and so once um i finished my coursework at princeton i knew that i would be leaving there and, and wanted a place that felt um you know that made me feel the wonderful things that I felt in New Brunswick without uh, subjecting too much of my church family <laughs> and my parents' co-workers to all of that mess. God, it, it, would you consider that a form of covering or no? I, I don't know if that what you're describing is covering, but if it's almost like a like putting on a little like putting on a little bit of of a mask, like a half mask almost. <laughs> Right, of trying to like find that safe space between being yourself, but also respecting that like you can't. Yeah, you're not gonna turn. Me? You're not gonna turn minds by being very loud. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Yeah, I mean, there are different moments. Um, you know, I, I've. I, it's been valuable to me. It has been a value to me to decide when I want to assert which element of my identity. Yeah. And I was. Um, in my academic work, I was really, um, I took multiple courses in the religion department. I almost uh, pursued religious studies in graduate school um, at Duke rather than going to Princeton. Um, so I was really interested in using my the, the tools I was cultivating in my academic life to create some liberation within my spiritual life. And so I was fighting on that front to to ensure that the Bible still had, you know, centrality in my life and, and, and still spoke to the way that I lived. And, and I was fighting that fight in that way. But it, I, but in terms of fashion and style and culture, um, there, there were 
there was an audacity that that was uh, uh, presenting a different challenge to the church altogether. And it was just like, you know, you're coming at this at multiple angles. So so choose wisely when <laughs> when you deploy. Yeah, that is that is, that is actually really good advice. I mean, like in general too, like this idea that you know you can be many things and many aspects of your personality, but choo- choose them wisely, right? And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. know know what that means. That identity means to the outer world, but also to yourself. Yeah, it's actually really great. Um, this is this is little life lessons on this podcast. I always love that when people get little little bits of like you know what life you know how life really is and. Um, yeah, that's just um, I think fun uh, fun advice or great advice. Um, but um, I lost my train of thought. Sorry, were you, did you want to mention anything else? Because I, I just that was I, I'm, I'm still taking that in actually what you just said. That's great. Yeah, no, yeah. I, I please digest. I I was just um, I guess we spoke a bit about my uh, queer organizing and activism yes. in Newark. Yes, and we have not discussed Sakia Gunn, who's yes. central. Yep. to that. So I, I did want to point to the overlap of, of two incidents um, and, and how they shaped my work here. Yep. No, look, please talk about them. So um, for folks who don't know um, Sakia Gunn, she was a Norker who um, queer identified, kind of embraced by the AG community. I don't, I don't get too specific with mm-hmm. um, how she identified because it really doesn't matter. But um, as the story goes, she and some friends um, took that journey that we were, that colorful journey that we were talking about earlier from Newark to the city, because um, if you're exploring a queer identity, it's not always safe to do it in your hometown. So the path train provides has provided that for so many Newarkers. Um, and so on the way home, um, and this is May of 2003, um, she the group encountered uh, a man, and I use that term loosely, mm-hmm. um, who pursued them and ultimately killed her. And it was uh, deemed a hate crime. And the community organizing um, around that was, was it called for a community, it, it called for safer streets, to be clear. Like, you know, it, it having a community, community center is safe, but is, is great. But if we don't, if we can't get there, then it serves no value. So we, the questions that the queer community was asking of the city or the demands we were making at the time were, were around um, building a, or establishing a, a safe streets first, but also a community center. Um, around the time of that murder, I was um, taking, I, I was being activated around another case, um, a young man named Rashawn Brazel who um, he was in uh, February, so two years later, um, February 2005, he went missing and his, um, I wouldn't say it was like Valentine's weekend, he was scheduled to meet with his mom and didn't didn't show up. And it turned out that his body parts were found um, dismembered and put into two different um, trash bags uh, that were found at a recycling plant and at a subway station stop. And I remember um, reading the article and just being floored by how dis- disgusting the, the nature of the, the, the murder was and uh, how the details were being reported in the media as well. And um, my organizing around Rashawn Brazel would uh, ultimately um, overlap with the organizing around Sakia Gunn's murder because all of us were working toward... Um, you know, anti-violence and safer streets for folks. And it was at a time where the queer community was a, a bit conflicted um, about what our ag- agendas were. A lot of folks were campaigning for gay marriage, um, which was not my fight at the time, because right. um, I, I do think that there that was a class issue. Like the ability to um, make end-of-life decisions and um, to parse out property, um, uh, are a bit of a luxury uh, if, yeah. you, if, if you're someone who can't walk to and from a destination without being assailed for who you are. So it's, um, it's funny. I just but, wanted to make a quick note. It's funny that you mentioned that because this is something I've thought about a lot. And um, I don't know how how much you know about uh, U.S. v. Windsor. It's the famous Edie Windsor case. 
Um, but uh, I've had Kenji Yoshino himself explain this to me uh, in a class uh, that they picked E.D. Windsor. So the Windsor case is very famous for bringing down uh, the Defensive Marriage Act, right? Uh-huh. And they specifically picked her as a plaintiff um, because the estate that she had um, would have inherited from her wife uh, was roughly the size of the an estate that a Supreme Court justice would have had. Mm. Just to show you that connecting that to that idea that like what the what what the marriage equality uh, fight was, um, how it's I don't want to say what it was about. I think a lot of different people who were participating in that fight for different reasons, but what it centered on and what actually made it win was a very like you said class based mm-hmm. um, strategy. Heteronormative, yeah, very heteronormative. I mean, I often joke that this is what the Massachusetts gay is, right? It's mm-hmm. the white it's the white picket <laughs> fence. It's why mm-hmm. gay marriage passed in, in Massachusetts so quickly because I think queerness in, in particularly suburban Massachusetts was defined by uh you know they're just like us they have the 2.5 dog 2.5 kids and 1.5 dogs and the prius um and it was more about like uh uh putting bounds on on like you said heteronormativity is a good way of describing it like just like trying Mm -hmm. to control um identity as opposed to um what i think you're fight what you were fighting for at the time right which is just like basic protections against a state, either state-sanctioned violence or state states' inability to do anything about the violence. Um, yeah. yeah. Anyway, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, but that was just wanted to put my two cents on that. No, it's, it's helpful to to have that um, addition because I, I didn't realize it, but I first of all, there's a distinction to be made between um, gay, like mainstream gay politics mm-hmm. and queer politics, um, and I certainly fancy myself, you know queer politically. And so what that means is that this heteronormative assimilationist strategy of showing um, America that we're just like you and (laughs) um, that that's why we should get the inalienable rights that (laughs) we were born having. Like, I, you know, I find that fundamentally problematic. And so um, it's fascinating now to look back at that time in my life where... um, you know, gay marriage was was not um, re- the the idea of gay marriage was not received favorably uh, um, uh, among the mo- the majority of the American population at that time. Um, and 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 seeing these stories of Sakia Gunn in two thousand three and Rashawn Brazel in two thousand and five, and thinking like, what is the gay community's responsibility to its youth? Yeah. Um, because we are not keeping these children safe. Like we are, we are not, and, and not only are we not keeping them safe, but we are not protecting their names and their preciousness when we lose them. Um, one of the reasons that I decided to mobilize behind the Rashawn Brazil um, murder was that it was mismanaged so reprehensibly in the press that I could not believe that <laughs> what I was seeing, like it was um, subway hack job ID'd, said the New York Post. And um, a number of publications intimated that um, he was on his way to meet up with a a lover that he, you know, met online through an app and like cell phone records. None of that was substantiated, but it was printed, you know, multiple times. Um, And so the black the, the black press and the black culture kind of felt like, oh, that's a gay issue. Like that's a gay issue. And the the gay community was like well that's a black issue like that's an urban issue you know you we're worried about marriage um and so i saw it fall, like because of uh, he stood at the intersection of those identities um I, I saw real time um how the case was not getting the 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 coverage that it, it should have and a new york uh police department officer commented that if he was an aspiring white actress, the murder would have been solved by now. Hmm. And um, to have that imprint was a a powerful catalyst, you know, forward for for me. And it it moved me from kind of armchair activism, you know, uh, to really taking to the streets. But I say all that to say um, I was doing that, you know, at a time where um, my peers were, fighting for marriage. I myself was engaged at the time um, to a man and uh, disowned by my mother because 
of because of that. And so the the spiritual element, the the political element, um, all of that coalesced in, in ways I could not have predicted. Wow, that's I mean that's all very powerful. Um, I, if I'm not mistaken, Sakia has a um, there's a mural on Twenty One Right dedicated. Yes, to, uh, to, with a photo or, or using a photo, like it's a thing a triplicate or something. Yes, um, I've yes. seen a, I've seen the I've seen the mural. It's a really nice mural. It's towards uh, like a little past South Street, I think. Um, which is that's another that's another thing is maintaining those murals. God, I hope we put the money in maintaining them because yeah. being next to Twenty One is not the let's let's say it's not a museum environment. <laughs> yeah. Um, for their protection. Um, yeah. There's a weird. We, we love the public arts. So we yeah. We, no, we do. No, we do. And I, I want to make sure that we we maintain the. Um, the integrity of those murals. Um, yeah. You know, in a sort of... Also, I'm sorry, yeah, you're saying. Also to point out that in, in terms of what's come of that uh, organizing around her murder, we do have an LGBT center yes. now. Yep. Um, yep. And we do have a Pride Week that is um, upholding her memory always. So that's coming around next month in, as well. Is it August or July? It's July. It's July. Okay. I know we do it later. It's always yes. a little bit of a joke that we do it later, but then again, it's smart not to do it the same weekend because that would be really dumb on our part. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we moved it around quite a bit. Yeah. Um, I, I think that we found where, <laughs> where we're staying though. I'm actually a uh, point of trivia. I, I think I created the logo for Nork Gay Pride. Oh, is it, is it, is it different than the Pride Center's logo or the... Yeah. Okay, okay, I know I'm holding to it. I know, I know which logo you're talking about. I, I I've seen it. Um well that's really cool. I didn't realize you're just you're a graphic designer as well. I dabble. Um all of the marketing uh, materials for the pop-up, the website, the flyers for Larry Oki and Taco mm-hmm. Tuesday, all of that. Um <laughs> That's beautiful. Um oh there's already an ever there's already an event on Everfest apparently for Newark Pride. Um I have my computer right here, so I'm looking it up. Yeah, um, I'll probably. I've his, uh, in the past, I've done a game show called Stunts and Shows. Initially, it was like a youth geared program because there was not a lot of youth focused program right. uh, programming. But um, I think it's grown to be of greater interest to all folks who see the value of uh, successive generations of Norkers knowing the contributions of its queer community. Um, but I'm thinking of fusing that with my Larry Oki this year mm. so that it's um, even more fun. <laughs> I want, I, so. I, yeah, I, I keep wondering whether or not, I, I know a little bit about this history just because of my own research, but um, I'm wondering about whether or not to do like, a, a lecture would be so boring, people don't want, want to do that. But like, uh, people kind of forget that Club Zanzibar was the mm. site of Paris Dupree's, I think, first ball. I'm pretty sure that's what it was. Um, and that 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 site has a now it's a lot, but that site has a connection to Paris's burning, which itself mm-hmm. inspired like literally Pose takes direct cues mm-hmm. from Paris's burning, and Pose's lead actress is a Newark native. So it's just like this kind of weird circular history going on there, which I always loved about the show. Um, and I know it's in its last season right now. Pose is about to actually it ended, I think, this week. The last episode mm-hmm. is shown this week. Um, I love the show a lot, but I've been so busy these last few days. I haven't, or last few weeks, I've had a chance to to watch the show. But um, do you watch Pose? Uh, I watched the first season. I haven't caught up on the rest. The second yeah. season's actually better than the first. I'll say. Uh, yeah. I can't speak to the third, but. The second is better. Yeah, I have a number of friends that work on the show, so hopefully I won't get into too much trouble because hey, no one knows I'm not caught up. If you have a connection to MJ Rodriguez and get, can get her on this podcast, I will owe you everything because <laughs> I would love to ask her, you know, have her story shared here on this podcast. Um, I've been trying to reach out to her uh, with little to no success. Um, but uh, that's for another day. <laughs> yeah, she's been um, very supportive of North Gay Pride. We met of course, at yeah. a flag raising. Oh, um, so I'm not directly connected. Of but course, I know yeah. Somebody yeah. In the yeah. Um, but um, yeah. Any other last stuff you want to share with the audience before we get into the final question of the podcast? Um, I am deeply grateful to be in Newark right now. It's um. Walking to the pop-up over the Black Lives Matter mural, um, but also like experiencing the mounted police mm. battalion, um, the the 
the drive that we have to reconnect with one another as, as humans is is great um and the entrepreneurial spirit that that cropped up you know when we all had time to sit down and figure out what our values were it's really manifesting powerfully in the north landscape and i'm excited about the possibilities for the artists and the creatives and the institutions that want to support them that's oh, that's nice. Um, so my last question to you is just simply, what are you excited for newer? <laughs> um, so more of that. <laughs> um, I am excited about uh, living in Forest Hill. Um, it's a community that I dreamed about and strategized toward, and so um, seeing that um, or, or this community growing in diversity is exciting to me i hear so many stories about how um how much factionalism and how segregated um different parts of newark have been historically so i'm excited to see um newark's diversity really be a true diversity that it's not just a but you know a, a a series of ethnic enclaves but that we're really engaging each other in healthy and substantive sustainable ways so that um, and I think that folks should really be paying attention to what they're wearing right now. I think folks are going to look back at how spending a year in quarantine impacted fashion and, and how um, learning the benefits of wearing masks, you know, you know, shape fashion moving forward. So if you haven't um, taken a selfie lately, take one for posterity, just <laughs> preserve it for your grandkids because people will be writing about. Um, what we were wearing and how we were styling ourselves in this very peculiar moment in North history. You know, it's funny is I said to myself, I'm keeping a COVID journal. Mm -hmm. Do you know how long that lasted? <laughs> One day. <laughs> yeah, sounds about as long as mine. It's, it's the best intention. I was like, I'll be Samuel Pepys, history reference for all you nerds out there. And I could write about the plague and like 200 yeah. years later, people will be looking at me being like, I'm the only voice from that era. <laughs> yeah. um, but that did not happen at all. Um, yeah. I instead, I, think... I, I sat on the couch and watched, um, you know, what did I, I don't even remember what I watched. I just watched stuff <laughs> on Netflix. That's a bad sign. It is bad. <laughs> but no, I think we all learned that self-care, you know, sometimes precludes our productivity. I think mm. had, you know, so many of us told ourselves the story that if we just had you know, time, you know, you, I, the, we would accomplish this or we would accomplish that. But it's not just time. It's clarity of mind and peace that produces our creative output, right? Like it's, it's not just hours. It's the ability to, to separate um, from the anxiety that's holding your pen back. Um, and we did not have that. So we vetched out. <laughs> you're you're so much more profound than me. I I feel like I'm an old ancient Greek. I'm also like, and the muse comes in <laughs> and like gives you the inspiration, and you go off. I've I've definitely had those moments where for some reason it's not because I'm in a good place or whatever. I just am able to do like I like the 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 Renaissance article that I wrote, uh, which some people have read uh, who listen to this podcast. Actually, a lot of people who listen to this podcast have read it because they've told me. Um, that that came out in a spurt. That was literally not a night, but definitely over the course of two days. I had been thinking about it for a long time, but like I would sit in front of the computer, barely get out ten cent ten words, and then for some reason one night it just just spilled out in a logaria of just mm -hmm. typing, and I don't know why. But I like to blame it on some kind of like goddess that's out there just <laughs> over my shoulder who just is never usually there. <laughs> um, I'm certain that's exactly what it was. Yes, exactly. Uh, just, I don't know what I'm excited for. Uh, you know, it's summer in Newark. It's hot. It's fun. Um, mm -hmm. I walked the Ironbound last night and it was an Ironbound I hadn't seen in two years almost. Um, yeah. Um, one that was not, there were definitely people hanging on the Ironbound last summer, like pushing it. But this felt a lot more free in a way that it hadn't been before. Maybe it's a situational thing and not so much anything changing, actually, but more me feeling safer there. Um, but that was pretty exciting. And uh, there won't be a Portugal day from what I can hear. Oh, wow. Um, speaking of speaking of ethnic <laughs> ethnic enclaves, enclaves. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, I, I'm sure next year, maybe there'll be so much pent up demand that I'll be like extra crazy like it was when I was a kid. Um, 
but yeah, thank you. Um, that's it for this episode. I want to thank our guest, Larry. Um, this is Manny Antunes, host and producer of the Pond Market Podcast. Editing and sound engineering by Bob Fraze. Podcast and logo design provided by Robert Conti. Additional creative input by Samantha Cateas. If you have a subject you would like to hear discussed on the pod, please email podandmarket at gmail.com. We are reading those emails. Uh, I have started episodes because of it. Um, or you could contact the pod through social media. Uh, we are on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And I'm going to end with a quote uh, from a book by Jeremy Atherton Lynn. It's called Gay Bar. It's basically... Uh, it's nonfiction. That's the best way to describe it. <laughs> it's a sort of personal biography slash history of the gay bar slash uh, musings on the future of queer identity. And it's 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 all over the place. It's a lot of fun. Um, definitely not PG rated. Um, there's a lot of drugs and a lot of, you know, sex in this book. Um, but there's a, a lot of great, these great uh, descriptions of, of just sort of gay culture. And this is really one great quote that I really like and I think is very emblematic. Um, so this is the quote. We go out to be gay. We crave this when one, once again, growing bored with the straight world, I will announce to my date, I want to be gay this weekend. This carries an ineffable but precise connotation along the lines of white girl wasted. It means we don't want to, for example, attend a recital of minimalist, minimalist composition. That's something we might do otherwise. But when we decide to be gay, we want to dance to starships by Nicki Minaj and go downhill from there. Thank you. <laughs>